Welcome to episode 202 of the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of December 10th, 2023, as always from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side, which fortunately is not under aerial bombardment. For the past two months, we have been focusing, of course, on Gaza, uh, which we will definitely get back to shortly, but we're taking a um, little deviation into the Western Hemisphere on this installment of the Counter Vortex, uh, because I've got a particular metaphorical bee in my bonnet about um, the political transition, which is underway in Argentina, if you've been following it. And I'm afraid that a part of what we're going to be discussing on this rant is um, semantics, for which I offer no apology. You know, people tend to have this um, dismissive attitude about semantics. It's kind of got a bad rap, you know? But um, semantics is the study of the meaning of words, okay? Hence, clarity about semantics is actually quite critical, especially in this age of ubiquitous deceptive propaganda. So the extremely odious Javier Millet, the president-elect of Argentina, is to take power today, December 10th. So he will presumably be president by the time you are listening to this podcast. And he is being called a lot of things in the stateside media, including the Argentine Trump, which is somewhat appropriate, following Bolsonaro in Brazil, who is happily no longer in power. Millet has inherited the title of the South American Trump, a far-right populist with an ultra-bombastic style, and a uh, TV star who... um, came up as a big wig in the private sector and is a so-called political outsider. Although, unlike Trump, he's a trained economist, so in that sense, more of a classic neoliberal than Trump. He came up on television as an um, economic and political commentator, but definitely played up the entertainment value with nasty insults and bluster far from being a, you know, dry technocrat. So in that sense, more Trumpian. And he has exploited the um, runaway inflation and general economic agony in Argentina and the widespread and entirely inevitable and warranted disillusionment with the reigning political class in Argentina of all of the parties. And his solutions are um, neoliberalism on steroids, so to speak. He's calling for dollarization of the economy, a massive slashing of the administrative state on a level even beyond what Trump is proposing in the United States, calling for abolition of the education and labor departments, radical deregulation of the economy, of course, abolition of the central bank, a classic bugaboo of the populist right, 
wants to drop the peso for the U.S. dollar. And uh, just by way of extreme example, you know, he's actually proposing a free market in human organs, the most lugubrious, venal exploitation of the poor imaginable. And yet, this open advocate of balls-out, undisguised, savage capitalism is being called, at least in the English-language media, an anarchist. Yes, really. A typical headline from the Wall Street Journal of November 10th, Javier Millet, a self-described anarcho-capitalist, is elected president of Argentina. The libertarian outsider defeats ruling party candidate Sergio Massa. And as a self-identified anarchist, I have been utterly appalled by this and wondering if he really does call himself that. When uh, a couple of days ago, a friend of mine in Buenos Aires, my old buddy of many years, Jose Rodriguez, posted the following brief comment on this question on Facebook. I read from Jose's post, quote, The issue is media channels incorrectly saying in Spanish a certain politician is a libertario, anarchist, when he is really a libertariano, libertarian, an ultra-neoliberal, end quote. So I decided to test this. I went on to Google News and started searching for stories from the Argentine media to see what vocabulary they are using. So I googled up Millet's name with the uh, the word anarchista, and nothing came up. I did it again with Libertario, and it brought back some results, and then with Libertariano, which brought back a great deal more results. So I believe that my buddy Jose has uncovered a widespread mistranslation, and the gringo media has been getting it wrong. And this um, semantic question has um, personal import to me because of my long association, starting in the 1980s, with um, a group here in New York called the Libertarian Book Club which I've spoken about before, was actually founded by mostly Jewish and Italian anarchist exiles from fascist Europe in the 1940s who um, came to New York and founded the book club in, we believe, 1946 to uh, you know keep the ideology of anarchism alive. Uh, but they, uh, in the Cold War atmosphere and the paranoia of the immediate post-World War II era, they didn't want to exactly call themselves anarchists, so they used the term libertarian as something of a euphemism, but not entirely a euphemism, because they made very clear that they were libertarian socialists, which describes what their brand of anarchism actually was and is, because some of us are keeping it alive. The notion of socialism without the state, a decentralized and radically democratic vision 
of socialism organized from below by workers and communities and the self-organized masses themselves, not imposed from above by bureaucrats or commissars, with political entities beyond the local level entirely accountable to the base and arising through voluntary association and non-hierarchical and structure. Get it? Mikhail Bakunin and Emma Goldman and others of the era of classical anarchism used that label, libertarian socialism, as a rough synonym for their kind of anarchism. But, of course, uh, the word libertarian in U.S. political discourse has largely been you know, subject to a hostile takeover by the um, free market right. And during the period of my um, involvement in the Libertarian Book Club, uh, we kind of had an identity crisis about the name because we didn't want to abandon it in deference to our you know, founders, some of which were still alive and who I actually knew back in the 1980s. They were like really old cats by then. But we also felt that the name was a little bit um, unintentionally deceptive. So eventually we wound up at a compromise where we uh, we continued to be the Libertarian Book Club, but our um, principal activity was organizing a monthly anarchist forum. So we were the Libertarian Book Club slash anarchist forum. That was how we finessed it. Uh, unfortunately, um, it's kind of moribund. It's been moribund for the at least the, the past 10 years or more. Um, but this um, hostile takeover, as I call it, of the term libertarian, which actually first emerged from the anarchist left in the 19th century, uh, this hostile takeover of the term by the free market right uh, really began in the 1960s with um, Senator Barry Goldwater of Arizona. Uh, who called himself a, uh, a libertarian and was <laughs> definitely a very different kind of libertarian. And then it was taken up by the Libertarian Party, capital L, capital P. Um, and they were, you know, not in the orbit of Mikhail Bakunin and Emma Goldman, but of um, Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard and the um, Chicago School of Economics. Uh, re- progenitors of the um, of neoliberalism, really. Now, the LBC, Libertarian Book Club, here in New York City, was kind of a big tent, even though it was a small organization. <laughs> and um, we did have some right libertarian members, eventually, but they were more of the... Um, the long-haired variety, the so-called cultural libertarians who wanted to legalize cannabis and stuff like that, not so much the, uh, you know, doctrinaire, laissez-faire capitalists or economic libertarians. But nonetheless, uh, they were kind of in the orbit of the uh, Libertarian Party, and uh, they were, uh, you know, kind of a small clique in the uh in the libertarian book club most of most of us were you know old school left wing anarchists um now today there is a uh, you know a tendency which calls itself here in the united states anarcho capitalist or ancap as it's sometimes rendered uh they uh, wave the yellow and black flag yellow for gold 
as in the gold standard, another bugaboo of the populist right, as distinct from the red and black flag of anarcho-communism, uh, most anarchists do not recognize the ANCAPs as a legitimate part of the tradition because they don't want to abolish the state. Really, they know that without prisons and security forces, capitalism wouldn't last a minute. And even if you farm out these functions to the private sector, it's still a state in actual function. And in fact, has even less accountability to the people. And if you push them, I think most will admit that they want a minimal state to protect against force and fraud. Everything else is fair game, as if, you know, um, economic coercion were not a form of coercion, which, of course, it is. And uh, this question leads us to a perceived contradiction in the left anarchist tradition, which I suppose I must acknowledge. Now, I want to abolish capitalism and the state. I think that human survival is utterly incompatible with the existence of these institutions. But I also recognize that fear of the masses on the part of our rulers has succeeded in wresting certain concessions from the lords of capital over the generations, certain checks that have reined in or cushioned the impacts of the inherently rapacious, parasitical, life-destroying nature of the capitalist system. Most significantly, since the New Deal here in the U.S. and social democracy in Europe and various forms of populism in Latin America, this relates to um, the concept of moral economy propounded by the late British Marxist writer E.P. Thompson. Viewing these gains not as gifts from our benevolent overlords, but as gains of popular struggle and self-organized mass empowerment. Now, the hardcore anarchist critique is that this acceptance of perceived gains buys off the proletariat and forestalls world revolution. And yeah, there, there is an aspect to the dynamic of co-optation and pacification without a doubt. But you know what? As long as we're living under capitalism, I want rent control and labor standards and environmental regulations. Thank you very much. Even if we have a critique of these things, especially in their role of buying off the popular classes through clientelism, such as that of the Democratic Party in the U.S., although more so in FDR's time than our own, that's for sure, and Peronism in Argentina, about which more later. It's only the most rigid dogmatists of left-wing anarchism, I think, who would really embrace the worse is better ethic of the anarcho-nihilists, so to speak, I think most, even if they may be reluctant to admit it, share the anarcho-pragmatist position, as I call it. 
But starting with uh, Barry Goldwater in the 1960s and accelerating with Reagan and Thatcher in the 80s, you've had the ruling class fear of the masses, which reached its high noon in the 1930s, of course, eroding to the point where they felt confident enough for the counterattack and the neoliberal revolution, so to speak. Another word neoliberal, about which there is much confusion. Semantics again. Since um, liberal in American discourse kind of means the opposite, a belief in Keynesian oversight of the economy and a social safety net. FDR's crew adopted that term, liberal, because in American political culture, you can't say socialist, not even democratic socialist or social democracy or whatever. So while basically the same program in Europe was called social democracy, in the U.S. it was called liberalism with its implication of being forward thinking. Although today, liberal is used as an insult more often than not by both the left and the right, which is interesting. And the left is more and more taking up the term progressive, and even in recent years, reviving the verboten term socialist, which I think is a very salubrious development. But the neoliberals, who would become utterly hegemonic in the 1980s, want to go back to classic 19th century liberalism, that of the Adam Smith tradition, laissez-faire capitalism, magic of the market. The greater good will be served by the invisible hand of the market, a completely metaphysical concept, despite the pseudo-scientific pretensions of the neoliberals. And this means precisely dismantling the gains of the New Deal and social democracy and the labor movement and environmentalism and so on. And they've made a great deal of progress in doing so since Reagan, and uh, now with Trumpism, which really represents a somewhat different manifestation of the backlash, they're really going in for the kill. More about this later. So it appears that in Spanish, there is a distinction which is lacking in English, where we just have the word libertarian. In Spanish, a left libertarian like me is a libertario a libertarian of the true anarchist tradition, and a right-wing libertarian of the um, Chicago school type is a libertariano. So, in this instance, Spanish is more exacting than English. I wish English made this distinction. Javier Millet is not a libertario. He's a libertariano. And uh, here, (coughs) as I was getting at, Trump and Javier Millet, like Bolsonaro and uh, Keiko Fujimori in Peru, represent extreme neoliberalism actually starting to bleed into fascism, adopting a revolutionary posture and rhetoric that taps into popular anger, while preparing, of course, to actually worsen social and economic conditions by tearing up the 
remnants of the social contract, which will further fuel popular anger for them to exploit. It's a good scam. Now, it may only be a minority of the masses that falls for it, but they'll use that minority to keep the rest of us in line in the manner of um, Mussolini's black shirts and Hitler's brown shirts. And you can see it emerging here in the U.S. with the MAGA militias. So this is not anarchism, but it's precise opposite. And what's particularly maddening about it is that Argentina has the strongest anarchist tradition of any country in Latin America. I'm going to go over the uh, history briefly, because I just did a crash course on it, <laughs> or cr a cram refresher. But um, as a brief introduction to this discussion, we have to acknowledge the critical position in contemporary Argentine political culture of the legacy of the former dictator, elected dictator, you might say, Juan Perón, and the tradition of Peronism, which has co-opted popular currents in clientelist manner since the 1940s. The defeated candidate, Sergio Massa, was um, economy minister under the outgoing president, Alberto Fernandez, of the Justicialista Party, the most significant Peronist party today, of the center-left, although Peronism, as we shall see, has played to both the left and the right. He was of the uh, you know same political dynasty as former president and vice president under Alberto Fernandez, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, not related. And uh, Peronism in its roots, in its classical period, was corporatist, another word about which there is much confusion today. So, semantics once again. In its original sense, corporatism did not mean rule by or in the service of private business corporations, the sense in which it's generally used today, but a system characterized by incorporation of popular institutions, such as trade unions and mass organizations, into the apparatus of the state or ruling party. This system entails populist content to the reigning program. So in that sense, it's kind of opposite of what the, you know corporatism is means when it's used as a synonym for neoliberalism, basically. But classical corporatism, that of Juan Perón, also implies an ethic of class collaboration rather than class struggle. Perón and Benito Mussolini are considered the classic corporatist figures of the 20th century, and Mussolini's apocryphal quote, fascism is corporatism, is almost always misinterpreted today, which is important because uh, this misinterpretation leads us to um, not be cognizant of the critical populist element of fascism, particularly in its incipient phases, in its rise to power before the populist elements are ultimately thrown overboard. More about this later. 
In this uh, same period, I should point out, there was definitely a corporatist element to um, FDR and the New Deal here in the United States, should be said. Uh, And I would also argue that um, there are classic corporatist regimes still extant today, not so much, you know, the outgoing um, neo-Peronist dynasty in Argentina, which was pretty watered down, but certainly I would say that the uh, Venezuela of Nicolas Maduro is a classic corporatist state. But before the rise of Peronism, the most powerful and threatening popular current among the Argentine masses was anarchism. And as in New York, and particularly my neighborhood, the Lower East Side, anarchism first gained the foothold in Buenos Aires in the 1880s among immigrant communities who brought it with them from the old country. And in particular, my paisanos, the Italians, and particularly my peeps, the Southern Italians. Yeah, I'm Southern Italian on my mom's side, in case you didn't know that. And immigrants from southern Italy formed a key base of support for the for the anarchist movement that emerged in Buenos Aires in this period. Interestingly, the um, anarchist newspaper of this period was called El Descamisado, the shirtless, a reference to the poor, of course. We will have more to say on the significance of this name later. Very telling significance, I would argue. Uh, One key figure was Pietro Gori, an immigrant from Tuscany in central Italy, well-known as a uh, poet and songwriter, actually. Uh, His most famous song is Adio a Lugano, Farewell to Lugano, about his period exiled from Italy to Lugano, Switzerland, for his anarchist activism, and then being kicked out of Switzerland. He eventually, in 1898, landed in Argentina, where he helped found an anarchist-oriented trade union, the Regional Workers' Federation of Argentina, FORA, about which more later. The famous Enrico Malatesta from Campania in southern Italy, another giant of classical anarchism, was exiled to Buenos Aires in 1885, spent the next four years there, a big influence on the Argentine movement. And I should mention Severino Di Giovanni from Abruzzo, who was the real hothead of the lot, the real advocate of old-fashioned bomb-throwing anarchism, propaganda of the deed, as it was called at this time. And there was a lot of that kind of misguided adventurism going on in Argentina in this period, and also a lot of debate about it in the anarchist movement. But ultimately, it was the advocates not of individualist terrorism and assassination, but um, mass popular action and the general strike who won out with the founding in 1901, of the Regional Workers' Federation of Argentina, or FORA, and uh, the, I think, more explicitly anarchist Regional Workers' Confederation of Argentina, 
Cora in 1909, uh, which merged with the Fora in 1914, but there continued to be a split between the anarchists and the syndicalists. Now, today we think of anarcho-syndicalism as a single ideology, the notion of an alliance of autonomous trade unions bringing down and then replacing the state as the organizing structure of society. But as with the CNT Phi in Spain, there was um, something of a tension between syndicalism and a generally more radical, explicitly anarchist element. So um, two factions of the Fora emerged in um, 1915, uh, each named for their respective founding congresses. There was Fora Five, founded at the Union's Fifth Congress, which was explicitly anarchist, and Fora Nine, founded at the Ninth Congress, which merely called itself syndicalist. But uh, Worker Miltonsy continued to mount a 1902 strike by longshoremen in Rosario, turned into a general strike, the first of um, repeated general strikes during this period ultimately resulting in a xenophobic backlash and a crackdown from the authorities with the passing that year, 1902, of the Law of Residence, followed by um, the passage in 1910 of the Law of Social Defense, which both allowed for the mass deportation of immigrant anarchists and unionists. In 1907, there was the Buenos Aires Tenants' Strike, a mass rent strike in the um, tenement buildings of the city against rent hikes being imposed by the landlords. It lasted for several months, something I have wanted to see in New York City all my life. 1909 saw the Semana Roja, or Red Week, a week-long uprising that began with a police massacre of the May Day March in Buenos Aires that year called to um, demand the eight-hour workday. The police commander responsible for the repression was later assassinated by a Ukrainian immigrant, Simon Radowitsky, who would do 20 years in prison and then, upon his release, go on to fight in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, much of the repression was also carried out by a clandestine paramilitary group with links to the police known as the Cossacks. Then we had the Semana Tragica, or Tragic Week, in January 1919, which began as a strike at a metal plant and spread to a general uprising, which was bloodily put down with hundreds killed. And the following year, 1920, saw the famous episode known as the Patagonian Rebellion, a rural workers' strike in the southern province of Santa Cruz, which was put down by the cavalry with over a thousand killed. There was a really excellent movie made about this in 1974 by that same name, La Patagonia Rebelde, the Patagonian Rebellion, or the Rebellion in Patagonia, as I think is referenced in English. Uh, the German immigrant, Kurt Gustav Wilkins, 
would assassinate Lieutenant Colonel Hector Benigno Varela, the military leader in charge of the repression, and Wilkins would himself be assassinated in prison. Uh, during the so-called infamous decade of the 1930s, anarchism began to decline, and the uh, Fora 9 syndicalist union eventually merged through some intermediate iterations into the General Confederation of Labor, CGT, which remains the most significant trade union in Argentina today. And the big turning point comes in 1943 with a coup d'etat by populist elements of the armed forces, including Colonel Juan Domingo Perón, who was himself purged and imprisoned for being too populist in 1945. And the mass protest for his release in October of that year are considered the um, founding episode of Peronism. He was shortly elected to the presidency, instated his corporatist program, won the loyalty of the CGT, nationalized the central bank, cracked down on the opposition, instated a de facto dictatorship, if an elected one, uh, became, became the focus of a personality cult, along with his wife, Eva Perón, and his followers were known as the descamisados, the shirtless ones. He even toured the country on a train that he named El Descamisado during his 1945 campaign for the presidency. So a very clear appropriation of the popular current of uh, anarchism a couple of generations later by a very statist program. And Perón flirted both with the radical left and with fascism, both famously meeting with Che Guevara and allowing Nazi war criminals to settle in Argentina. He remained in power until he was removed in a conservative coup almost exactly 10 years later, in September 1955, and went into exile in the fascist Spain of Francisco Franco. The new conservative dictatorship, ironically and pretentiously, called itself the Argentine Revolution, and in the militant resistance to it that emerged, Peronism and nostalgia for his dictatorship was fairly hegemonic. So, a contest of rival authoritarianisms, conservative versus populist, there were a series of mass uprisings, including the Cordobazo in the city of Cordoba in May 1969, shortly followed by the Rosariazo in Rosario, and the Casildazo in Casilda in 1971. Eventually, a left-wing Peronist guerrilla movement emerged, the Montoneros, and finally, the regime bends. There is a political opening, and Perón is allowed to return after 18 years of exile in 1973. And in the celebrations of his return, violence breaks out between his left-wing and right-wing supporters, most notably the Ezeiza massacre, in which, guess what? 
the left wing of the movement was effectively crushed. Surprise, surprise. I think we've heard this story before, haven't we? Following a pattern set by classical European fascism, if you know the history. Perón returns to the presidency, but serves less than a year before he dies in office in 1974. He was briefly succeeded by his widow, Isabel Perón, but she was overthrown in the right-wing coup of 1976, which brought to power the military junta, initially headed by General Jorge Videla, uh, which unleashed the so-called dirty war against the left opposition, both Peronist and otherwise, communist, socialist, etc. By this point, not anarchist so much, with upwards of 20,000 killed or disappeared. Uh, democracy returned with new elections in 1983, and Peronism and its Justicialista party reemerged again with both left and right factions, but now both considerably moderated. Carlos Menem from the Peronist right was elected in 1989 and essentially instated um, neoliberal policies. The left-wing Peronist Nestor Kirchner was elected in 2003, followed by his wife Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner, who, as I speak, although probably no longer as you are listening, serves as vice president under the outgoing president, Alberto Fernandez, no relation. But there have been two deep economic crises over the past generation of um, intermittent neo-Peronist rule, the first starting in 2000, which set off the Piquetero movement, which saw occupations of factories which um, actually continued to operate under principles of worker self-management, clearly a survival of the anarchist tradition. And um, the current economic crisis, which brings us to the present dangerous juncture. Last year, 2022, saw weeks of mass protests in response to a rapidly deepening economic crisis throughout the country, dubbed the Argentinazo, although it wasn't nearly as violent as the Azo uprisings of the 1960s. And recent years have also seen um, rural mobilizations against mining and extractivist industries, often in alliance with um, indigenous peoples, which is very encouraging and very interesting, and also something of a um, survival, if indifferent, name of the anarchist tradition. So it remains to be seen how much um, Javier Malay is going to be able to get away with and how much of his um, radically reactionary program he's going to be able to instate. Uh, hopefully he's going to um, meet some resistance from the National Congress and also popular resistance from below. And now, with uh, you know all of the political parties seemingly discredited, including the Peronist Justicialistas, maybe there can actually be the reemergence of a militantly independent working class movement and the revival, or revived influence at least, of Argentina's genuine anarchist tradition.
All right, wrapping up here. I should mention the two books that I read to um, get up to speed on all this. One really excellent book, Argentina, From Anarchism to Peronism, Workers, Unions, and Politics, 1855 to 1985 by Ronaldo Monk et al., a couple of co-authors, published by um, Zed Books in London in 1987, and Da Emigranti a Rebelli, Story di Anarchici Calabresi in Argentina. Yeah, that was Italian. <laughs> From Immigrants to Rebels, the History of Calabrian Anarchists in Argentina by um, Oscar Greco about the uh, the immigrants from uh, Calabria in southern Italy uh, who um, became the base of the uh, the anarchist movement in Buenos Aires. Actually published by a, uh, a local publishing house in Cosenza, Clipper Edizioni, K-L-I-P-P-E-R. That doesn't actually sound very Italian. But uh, yeah, I actually picked this book up when I was in Cosenza in the southern Italian region of Calabria, <clears throat> uh, I think uh, four years ago, when I was um, there with my parents to visit uh, relatives on my mom's side of the family. And um, if you're listening, hi, Ma. Really, really interesting book. I couldn't, uh, you know, get quite as much out of it uh, <laughs> as I would have liked because my Italian is very, very limited. But um, I got something out of it. One very interesting angle is... Um, the apparent radicalization of the Calabrese peasants who became the, uh, you know, the urban proletariat in Buenos Aires in peasant uprisings and land occupations in Calabria in uh, the 1860s and 1870s. He mentions quite a few, which um, I uh, was not aware of, and, and I found very little online about them. So uh, I'm very, very intrigued. I'd really like to know more. Apparently, a, a key figure in the, the movement in Calabria during this period was Carlo Cafiero from the neighboring region of Apulia, who was actually a um, comrade and champion of Mikhail Bakunin in the First International. I definitely need to um, read up more on this. This book is quite an eye-opener, even if, uh, you know... <laughs> I only got so much out of it because of my poor Italian. So uh, just to sum up, this is what I have to say to Javier Malay. Anda cagar, pendejo. Anarcho-capitalist is an oxymoron. And you don't even rate an oxy if you get my drift. So we actually discussed semantics on the counter vortex. You got a problem with that? What are you, anti-semantic? Dope. Okay, this has been episode 202 of The Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Uh, and um, please support us. Um, I want to give a shout out to another old friend of mine, Christine Halverson, uh, here, in, um, here on the Lower East Side. I think she's still living in the neighborhood who actually contributed $100 to our year-end fund drive. Thank you so much, Christine. Really appreciate it. It would be great if someone out there could match that and, uh, you know, help keep these rants 
coming, okay? Just go to Counter Vortex, and it'll all be very, very clear how you can make a donation to our year-end fund drive and keep my voice on the internet, or go to Patreon, patreon.com slash countervortex. We have 60 Patreon supporters. Actually, we don't even have 60 Patreon supporters because we were at this plateau of 60, and I was really hoping that it would, you know, go up and we could get past this plateau. And instead, it went down to 59. So uh, over the past week, (laughs) which is kind of disappointing. I think somebody objected to what I had to say about Gaza and the question of Palestine. And the telling thing is that I don't even know if it was a... um, a Zionist or an anti-Zionist, because I had, you know, criticisms of both sides, as I always do, although I am definitely in the anti-Zionist camp. So anyway, somebody please take up the, um, take up the slack, <laughs> patreon.com slash countervortex, become a subscriber for just one or two or five dollars a week. We'll take one. One is fine. Uh, please do it. Support the Counter Vortex. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance and rant on you next time.